Psalm 51 that we've partially read already is a psalm of confession. King David, the author from David and Goliath, that guy, he's all grown up now. He's the king. He's agreeing with God about the truth of his failures and his shortcomings. David is confessing his sin. So we're going to run through a few verses. We've already seen, I think repetition is great to get this in your head. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want to highlight a couple of things that David is confessing. Verse 1 and 2, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verses 9 through 12. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Rejoice to, restore to me the joy of your salvation, not mine, yours, and uphold, with, with, uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. There's a word, blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So for context, what's happening here? King David has just stolen someone else's wife. And then he had her husband killed. And after doing so, this is, you know, bad stuff. After doing so, a prophet of God named Nathan, who we've talked about already from up here, comes to David and through some creative storytelling calls David out on his sinfulness. And David in this moment is deeply convicted and then he writes this psalm, Psalm 51. As a confession, there's that word again, confession of his sin and a neediness of God to give him grace. Grace. Now, whether or not you've been in church before, whether you've been here a long time, you probably know that Christians like to talk about grace. We talk about it a lot. But what actually is grace? What is it? You're sitting in a church building amongst a community of people who call themselves Brandywine Grace. What does it mean? Well, grace is when God gives us something good even when we don't deserve it. And by good, I mean God's definition of good, not ours. That's real important. I also think it's appropriate in this moment to define what mercy is, since it's a word that shows up in verse 1, and we can often get it confused with the term grace. So what is grace? Grace is a gift, a help, or support given to us that we don't at all deserve. Mercy feels very much like it's in the same family as grace, but it's not identical. Mercy is an intentional withholding of the penalty we have earned because of our failure. It's a refusal to punish when punishment is deserved. See the difference? So grace is something given that we don't deserve, and mercy is something withheld that we do deserve. Okay? Now, why, why is this important? It's been story time for the last 10 minutes. Why is this important? It's because you need the gifts of God's grace and mercy. You do. I need them. David needed them. And you need them. You need his grace. 
You need his mercy. You need to be washed. You need to be purged and made whiter than snow. You need your failures blotted out. You need a clean heart. You need God's close presence. You need restoration. You need deliverance. You need, you need, you need, you need, you need. You say, <laughs> what are you talking about, dude? I'm good. In fact, taking a look at everyone around me and around the world right now, I'm real good. I'm not that bad. I certainly didn't have an affair with another married person and then have their spouse killed. I'm fine. But here's a question. What if you're not? What if you're not fine? We'll put that aside for a minute, come back to it. Hear me on this. I think a a lot of people think this Jesus stuff and Christianity and all that is just an invitation into restrictive living that prevents me from enjoying the freedom I want and deserve in life. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. They think Christianity is a religion that comes along and tells me what I'm not allowed to do anymore. It draws confining and claustrophobic boundary lines around my life, choking out all the fun and all the excitement and all the pleasure and all the freedom I desire and want to experience. Someone says, see, I don't have a problem, and if I did, the solution certainly wouldn't be the shackling of my liberties with the boundaries of Christianity's rules and regulations for my life. Hard pass. Boo. But I want to say to you today is that a relationship with God through Jesus Christ isn't about restrictions. It's actually about freedom from the already existing restrictions in your life that you don't even know are there. Christianity isn't about slavery to a set of rules. It's about emancipation from slavery that you're already in and you can't even see. Jesus isn't about locking you into a lifestyle of behavior change. Boring. He's about releasing you as a prisoner from the jail cell of idols you worship and are unknowingly imprisoned by. Jesus is about setting you free from captivity. And you go, okay, again, weird. Can we get one of the pastors up there to deliver the rest of this sermon? Um, You might ask the question, what am I in bondage to? It's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, You want to know what you're in bondage to? You personally, not not your spouse sitting next to you, not your friend, not the person you want to elbow right now. You want to know what you're in bondage to? You personally. Here's how you find out. Ready? We're going to put this up here. Finish this sentence. I can't live without or have a sense of worth and purpose without blank. Whatever you're thinking right now in your mind, I cannot live without or have a sense of worth and purpose without fill in the blank. 
my job, my family, my friends, recognition, importance, whatever it may be. Whatever fills in that blank for you is what you're enslaved to. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Family is not a, not a bad thing, but you can be enslaved to your family because you can't live without them. About a year and a half ago, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, who are here today, I'm excited about that, they moved to Westchester. And when they moved to Westchester, to the delight of my children, they bought a house with a pool. It's the greatest thing ever. So they went over a few times and swam. But I remember the first time I went over, we brought our dog with us to play in the backyard, and the kids could play in the pool. And uh, I noticed that the dog kept going to the side of the pool and drinking the water from the pool, like dogs have a tendency to do. But I found out from my father-in-law that the pool was a combination of chlorine water and salt water. I didn't know you could have that, but it was a, a combination of the both. And I thought to myself, this is probably not good for my dog to drink from this pool, right? She kept doing it over and over, and I would stop her and stop her. And I was like, fine, I'm just going to put her inside. So I grabbed her to, to pick her up as she was drinking water from this pool. And when I did, she nipped at me. She went, ah. Get away from me. And I thought, what in the world? I'm trying to help you right now. And we had put out a fresh bowl of water for her to drink from. She kept going to the pool. So I picked her up and I put her inside. When I came back out, Rachel, my wife, was like, there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere. She's right. You and I are just like my dog in that way. You are searching for something to satisfy your deep thirst in life. And you're lapping up salt water mixed with chlorine. You're going to pools of water that will never quench your thirst. In fact, those pools you're drinking from, they're actually killing you. And when God's grace comes along through warnings like this or through his word, and they tell you that you're drinking salt water and chlorine, and that grace tries to pull you away from what's destroying you, you bite at the hands attempting to rescue you. And you say, ah, I'm fine. Ah, leave me alone. Ah, I don't need your help. But you're not fine. You're weak. You're like, I'm not weak. I go to the gym five times a day. You're weak. You spend a third of your life sleeping. You're weak. Your knees give out when you play soccer in your mid-30s. A couple guys in here are like, uh, close to home, Shelby. I get heartburn when I eat marinara sauce that's a little too acidic. I'm weak. And that's just physical stuff. You're not fine. You're not fine. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that you're not fine in multiple ways. You know that your actions are sometimes manipulative. You know that your thoughts are often ugly. You know that your motivations are selfish. You know that deep down in there, you need to be fixed. You know that you're broken inside, damaged goods in need of restoration. You are not fine. But I have very, very good news. 
even though all of us might be sometimes manipulative and ugly and selfish and broken and deeply damaged, God offers grace, mercy, cleanliness, closeness, restoration, deliverance. How? Jesus of Nazareth lived a life of absolute perfection, yet was brutally killed on a Roman cross, drinking in all the manipulation and ugliness and selfishness and brokenness of humanity. He took all of it, becoming sin on our behalf, and died the death of a guilty criminal. But he rose from the dead. He's not dead right now. He's actually alive right, right now. And he offers new life to anyone who would simply take it. Christians or rescued people are the ones who admit their need and they take it. They're not simply church attenders, although they do that. They're not just people who read the Bible, although they do that. They're not just sometimes joyful individuals who walk around in freedom and play spike ball in the summer, although God knows they do that. Christians are humble recipients of God's grace and mercy. That's who I am. You can't do a thing to earn it. You receive it. Have you received it from God? Have you humbly asked him to rescue you from you? from your sin, from your failures, from your shortcomings. He offers it to you if you just take it. Last year in February, I had a black brother in Christ, tenderly and with sincerity, someone whom I trust, ask me the question on camera too, which was weird, what does, he said, Shelby, what does Black History Month mean to you? And after a brief pause, I looked at him and I was like, I have literally never been asked that question before. Never. And even though it shouldn't have been, it was a stunning question to me. I lived on this planet for 40-something years and nobody has ever asked me that question, ever. And even though the question itself kind of sent me reeling, I appreciated it because it pointed out a blind spot that I never really thought about before. Never really thought about what Black History Month meant to me personally. So not that question, but I have a question for you because even though I didn't know it, I needed to be asked that question. So allow me to pose a question to you this morning. And I'm talking to you Christians, people who would show up here to church, people who would call themselves followers of Jesus. If that's not you, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to the Christians in here. Christian, I'm going to ask you a question you may have never been asked before, or maybe it's been too long since you've been asked, and that's this. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ do in your life to transform you today. How is the good news that Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross for your sin, 
that when you admitted your need and believed in him, all of your failures and shortcomings were placed on him and all of his purity and goodness and perfection was placed on you because of his life, death, and resurrection. How is that good news changing you today? Not the day that you said you became a Christian and finally said yes to him. That was awesome back then. But not back then. I'm talking about today. How is the gospel transforming your life right now? Right now. How is the gospel altering the way you interact with and talk about your boss? How is it transforming the way you treat the most annoying person in your family? That hit home a little bit, right? How does it change the way your heart and your mouth responds when someone cuts you off on the 30 bypass? How is the gospel transforming the way you evaluate and talk about with your friends your least favorite teacher? How is it shaping the way you use social media? How is the gospel shaping the way you respond to the opinions you disagree with on social media? How is it molding the thoughts you have about the people who post opposing opinions from yours on social media? How is the gospel transforming your life right now? If you can't answer these questions with full integrity, allow me to say that it's time you did some business with God and confess to him that you've been living the Christian life on autopilot in a way that makes you look no different from every other Chester County resident out there chasing the American dream. Psalm 51, verse 17, this is the New Living Translation. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. What does that mean? It means God doesn't want your religion. God does not want your religiosity. He doesn't want you to be better, which I know is the temptation after you hear a string of questions like what I just asked you right now. You hear stuff like that, and you're like, oh, man, I'm not doing very well. I got to get my head screwed on straight and stop being such an idiot. I got to get better at those things. Listen, I got to get better at those things is not the answer. It's not the answer. You want to know what the answer is? You ready? It's verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The solution to your lack of gospel transformation is not empty religion. God does not want your begrudging submission to his law. It's crying out to God with sincerity of heart and asking him to change you. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The grace you required when God saved you is the same grace that's required to transform you. It's freely given from him to you when you humbly and boldly ask for it. 
I'm reminded here of the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe gets all the press, and that's fine. It is my favorite, but my second favorite is the silver chair. And there's this scene in the silver chair when the evil witch queen of Underland is attempting to bewitch the story's four heroes, Jill, Eustace, Prince William, and this weird character named Puddleglum, very bizarre character. So the witch has them in this room, cornered in this room, and there's a fireplace there, and Prince William is demanding that they be set free from Underland, which is this underground kingdom, and return to Narnia. And she casually, like, glides across the room. She throws this, like, green powder on the fireplace, and it ushers in this, like, sweet smell into the room. And then she pulls out an instrument, kind of like a mandolin. It's all very creepy and, and slow and weird. And this is what happens next. I'm going to read you a snippet. She began to play it with her fingers. So she starts to play this instrument. A steady, monotonous thrumming that you didn't notice after a few minutes, but the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also made it hard to think. After she had thrummed for a time and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. Narnia, she said. Narnia? I have often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you are very sick. There is no land called Narnia. So the witch lulls the four heroes into this, like, hypnotized state. And as their heads start to hang really low, they begin to agree with the witch that Narnia wasn't real and Underland was all that existed. However, in one final gathering of his strength, Puddleglum, Puddleglum, stomps out the fire with his bare foot and he claims loyalty to Narnia and Aslan the lion who is the, the book series Christ figure. And when he does so, he breaks the spell over everyone and they come to their senses. It's pretty cool. You know, our apathy in life and our consumeristic culture is like the witch queen of Underland. It's constantly attempting to lull us into a hypnotized state of denial about the truth. It's trying to convince you that true gospel culture doesn't exist. And you should just quietly submit to the enchanting authority of a boring American Christian lifestyle. Just go to sleep. Nobody really lives that kind of dedication to Jesus. Nobody does that except the pastors, but that's their job. Nobody goes that hard when it comes to Christianity. Just be like everybody else. Just go to sleep. But don't go to sleep. Don't fall for it. Wake up. Cry out to him in the midst of your hypnotization. Stamp on that fire and say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. I need your grace in my life to help me see my blind spots because you got them. You do. I want the gospel to transform my life right now. And I need your grace to make that a reality. 
I'm tired of living a lifestyle of vanilla Christianity. You were good to give me grace and save me. You had mercy on me. Now be good to give me grace and mercy and make me passionate for you in every way. We need God. And God is good to give grace. Remember, grace is when God gives us something good even though we don't deserve it. We need his grace to forgive us of our shortcomings and our failures, our sin. Yes. And we need his grace to transform our lives right now so that we might live passionately for him in an environment that pushes us from the outside and our sinful tendencies from the inside to chase the American dream. We need God. Verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see it? He's the one doing the restoring. He's the one doing the upholding, not us. It's him. This is God's proactive advancement into our lives. This entire psalm, Psalm 51, is one long, humble admission that David isn't capable of doing anything without God making it happen. He's the one who saves, not me. He's the one who makes transformation possible, not me. May you and I be humble enough to admit with honesty that without him, we are without hope. And ask him to change us. I'm going to get the band to come up here and I'm going to pray while they come up. But I'm going to ask you guys to pray along with me. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I, do, I do need to do business with God. So I pray that you would. Maybe not later. Maybe right now. Pray with me. God, would you have mercy on me specifically? I needed your grace when, I came in, when you came into my life and transform me as a 19-year-old college student, and I need your grace right now to make me more and more into the image of your son. I pray for anyone in here this morning who has not cried out for your grace and mercy to rescue them from their sin. Would they be humble to admit their need and believe that you can re rescue them and restore them? Would they say yes to you today? Not put it off till later, but would they say yes today? and accept the grace you freely offer in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone in here who hasn't allowed the gospel to seep into the deepest roots of their life. Would you transform them today? Would you help them to see that they shouldn't speak unkindly to any people in their life, even the ones they're super comfortable with all the time? Would you help them understand that it's not okay to drag someone else's name through the mud? Would you change them into someone who doesn't belittle others online or gossip about people who are different from them? Would you bring about true gospel transformation? That we would be a community characterized by gospel culture here at Brandywine Grace. God, you are good to give grace, and you are our only hope. 
have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. Amen and amen.